0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Here we're going to look at Maimonides, Spinoza, and us toward an intellectually vibrant Judaism, Maimonides, of course, 12th century, one of the greatest the greatest Jewish philosophers in our history, the classic Jewish thinker who strove to reconcile Judaism and philosophy and science, and Baruch Spinoza, where the, the issue of his ban and his harem is still very alive, 17th century Amsterdam, is the classic Jewish heretic who revolutionized modern rationalistic philosophy and did much to undermine traditional Jewish beliefs, uh, re- religious beliefs, by drawing on the teachings of both, of these intellectual giants, we can seek a traditional Judaism that is vibrant, intellectually challenging and meaningful. We're here with our friend uh, and great scholar, Rabbi Mark D. Angel, who is the founder and director of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals and Rabbi Emeritus of the historic Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in New York City, where he's calling in from today. He is the author and editor of nearly 40 books, including Maimonides, Spinoza and Us, is published by Jewish Lights in 2009. Friends, we're glad you're here. Rabbi Angel, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Rabbi Yank-Lewitz, and uh, good to meet all of you. And uh, we hope to pray for peace in the world and living at a very difficult time. As the Rabbi mentioned before, we're at the time of war in the Ukraine, dealing with COVID, all kinds of problems. But today we're going to focus on a problem that we face as Jews, as thinking Jews, we represent a tradition that goes back thousands of years. And during those thousands of years, there've been very many streams of thinking, different ways of approaching the revelation at Sinai, the miracles the and the commandments that we have, et cetera, et cetera. There are different ways of approaching Judaism. How are we supposed to take this vast tradition going back thousands of years and synthesize it and make it relevant and meaningful to us in modern times. Our ancestors have been successful in doing that through all the generations, that's why we're still here. But that's our job as Jews today. How are we gonna make sure that there's a Judaism 50 years from now, 100 years from now, a thousand years from now? And one of the ingredients, I think, for important, uh, important ingredients for religion is the ability to think, think clearly, and think rationally. Of course, we have a mystical side, a spiritual side, and we're going to come back to that at some point, I think, later. But right now I want to emphasize the intellectual part, the rational part. When the COVID crisis first broke out a few two years ago, I, probably you also, received a email, a flyer from rabbis in Israel with long white beards, and they said, "If you call, just donate this, this many dollars, we promise you, we'll pray at the Kotel and you will not get COVID. Nobody in your family will get COVID. The charlatans, basically. But I thought about that, and I realized that they actually made many thousands of dollars on it. It was a good gimmick. But it shows something about Judaism, which is unhealthy. Namely, falling into a cult-like setting rather than a thinking Judaism, where each person feels autonomous. I can make my own prayers. I don't need the rabbi in Israel to make a prayer for me at the Kotel. I have direct access with God. Of course, I'm an angel. So yes, that's a joke. My name is Angel. Um, But we all have the same quality, the same ability. So two thinkers that have had a very big impact on me, and I think obviously on many, many other people, have been two people that really represent two sides of the rational coin. One is Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, who lived in the 1100s. And the other is Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, who lived in the 1600s, 500 years later. Both of these people were thinkers of the most profound dimension, and both have had vast impacts. Maimonides has had an impact on me and anyone who ever studied in the yeshiva, anyone who ever studied Jewish philosophy. He is the greatest Jewish philosopher. No one argues with that. There's probably more books written about Maimonides than about any other Jewish thinker, without any question. He was a genius. We'll come back to him in a minute. Spinoza is the opposite in the sense. He actually, he and Maimonides shared a commitment to reason, but they had sharp differences of opinion. Whereas Maimonides threw the entire Jewish tradition to him and reinterpreted it and rebounded it in a rational framework. Spinoza said, I'm done with it. I have no more use for it. I'm going to go in a different direction. So Maimonides has a, uh, a personal connection since we've been studying Maimonides since we're just very young. And Spinoza has a special attachment to me, why? Spinoza grew, grew up in a Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam. He was um, excommunicated in the year 1656. I was rabbi at the Portuguese synagogue in Manhattan Our synagogue was founded in 1654, Spinoza was alive then. And I always imagine that if Spinoza had come to New York, which was then New Amsterdam, and I was pushed back in a time capsule 300 something years, I would have been Spinoza's rabbi. (laughs) And I would have to deal with him. And you know what, I would have liked him. When you read Spinoza's writings, you're in the presence of a great person, quiet, not dogmatic clear thinking, and challenging. So as a rabbi of his synagogue, I always imagine myself, what would I do if Spinoza asked me this question or that question? How would I answer him? So my, most of the time I say, I'll go back to Maimonides. But here's a funny thing. Spinoza knew Maimonides at least as well as I do. He studied it very carefully. Spinoza studied Tanakh, he knew the Bible. He knew Talmudic stuff. He was not an ignorant person. He was quite knowledgeable in Jewish things. He wrote a Hebrew grammar. People often don't realize that. So he was a person of great seriousness who took the tradition and just threw it out. Some years ago, one of my late friends and uh, mentors was Rabbi David Hartman. David Hartman wrote a book called Maimonides, Torah and the Philosophic Quest. And his concern, was to exposit on the teachings of Maimonides and how they would be relevant to us who are basically philosophers, people who were searching for truth with a capital T. And David Hartman says there are really four ways to deal with religion, Judaism. We're talking about Judaism in particular. One he calls the way of insulation. What does that mean? Well, like a Hasidic sect or a yeshiva sect. I'm gonna close the outside world out. Outside world has ideas I can't deal with. Too challenging, philosophy, science, anthropology, it's too much for me. It's gonna confuse me, it's gonna confuse my children. I wanna live in a spiritual bubble. I will live in my own neighborhood. I will have my own friends. I will not read books that are not supposed to be read. I won't watch TV, I won't go to Zoom, I won't go to internet. I simply want to stay within my own confines. The way of insulation is very popular these days, because the, more generally speaking, the Haredi or the ultra right-wing Orthodox tends to be in the spirit. In other words, we don't want secular education. It gets in our way. It confuses our children. If our goal in life is to produce children and grandchildren who will be Jewish, the best thing to do is to put them in a hothouse, take away any challenges, take away confusion, let them just learn Torah. Let them learn from our teachers, our rabbis, and that's it. Close the doors on anything else. And that works for many people. Obviously, there are hundreds of thousands of people who choose the way of insulation, and God bless them. That's their choice. And if they're happy with it, let them live and be well. But I'm not happy with it. And I think those of you who are listening here aren't happy with it. And many, many Jews, most Jews, they have brains, they want to think, they don't want to be restricted to an authoritarian, Obscurantist setting. We have the God gave us all brains and God gave us a sense of reason. And he doesn't want us to just be in a sect. He wants us to be able to come to Judaism as free men and women with our own power of thought. But the way of insulation is one way of dealing with coping with religion in a hostile or viewed as a hostile society, an intellectually hostile society. The best way to do is just shut the society out, try as much as possible to insulate ourselves and our children. There's a second way, says David Hoff, David Hartman. He calls it the way of dualism. What's the way of dualism? I'll give an example. When I was at Yeshiva University as a student, going back many years, I had a professor of English literature who was also a rabbi. And in our class of English literature, he said, I don't want to hear one Hebrew word out of you, I don't want to hear one Yiddishism out of you, even though I'm Sephardic, I don't know Yiddish too much. I want only, as though you're non-Jews in a secular college. He's in the morning, This same teacher studied Talmud, he studied Rambam, he studied all the holy books. And in the morning he said, I'm a rabbi. When I teach literature, I'm a literary person. There's nothing to do with being a rabbi. In other words, We compartmentalize. We're two people. When we think in the Jewish context, we're Jews. We're religious Jews. And when we think as a scientist or as a literary person or as a professor or as a businessman, we put all of the Jewish knowledge aside and we become the next persona. That's the way of dualism. We live split personalities. And some people are able to do that. I'm not. I suppose most people are not why lie to ourselves? Our Judaism and our secular lives are intertwined and we're not two different people, we're one person. And therefore we wanna live a harmonious, holistic life. We don't wanna have to have this kind of separation. So although it works apparently for my teacher of literature, it won't work for me, it won't work for a great many people. And then says David Hartman, there's a third way, the way of rejection. Rejection means I look at the tradition, And there are things in it that just don't seem rational, doesn't seem reasonable. Did God come down from Sinai and and speak to our people at Sinai? Is it possible for God to speak to human beings? Is it possible for prophets really to speak to God and get messages to God? Does God really care if I eat ham and eggs or not? Does God care if I turn the light on on Shabbat? Doesn't God have more important things to do than worry about me doing mitzvot? For Spinoza, he took the way of rejection. If you, he says, if you want to believe in the stuff, it's more in the category of superstition. But if you just want to follow your brain, follow reason, you could live fine moral lives. And God is the God of nature. We don't need a personal God. You can't pray to God. God doesn't do miracles. This is for superstitious people. This is for ignorant people. But for intelligent people who are philosophers, just stick to the, the reason. Whatever we can prove is real. Whatever we can't prove reasonably, forget about it. It doesn't apply. That's a way of rejection. Well, the way of rejection has much to commend it, I must say. But the only thing is it's not very good for Jewish continuity. <laughs> if you're rejecting everything, you're not likely. Spinoza didn't get married, didn't have children. But for those of us who are married and have children or grandchildren, it doesn't work. You're not going to perpetuate Judaism if you reject the whole system. Some, some people can live for a while on, basis, on ethnicity or on, on bagels and locks, but it's not going to last for two or three generations. It doesn't go that way. Finally says David Hartman, there's a fourth way and that's called the way of integration. And this, the classic model of that is Rambam, Maimonides. What does integration mean? Integration means we have truth with a capital T. And the truth comes from one God. There's one God in charge of truth. And that God gives us different ways of getting to the capital T. One way is he gave it through prophecy. He gave us a Torah and through prophecy, We are able to come closer to god if i want to know god what should i do i pick up the torah i read it that's the word of god you can't come much closer unless you really are a prophet but that's pretty close you're getting exactly his words there's truth on the other side god also created the universe there's science there's physics there's biology all of that's part of god also and god created us with the brain god created us with the ability to rationalize to become philosophers That's also part of God's means for us to get close to the capital T. So Rambam says it's not that religion is here and science is there, or religion is here and philosophy is there. There's such a thing called religion philosophy. It's all one thing. Why? It comes from one God. Ah, but aren't there conflicts between religion and science? Not for Rambam. For Rambam there's no such thing as a contradiction between religion and science. You know why? Because if something is true with a capital T meaning, there's only one source that could come from. That one source is God. And therefore God doesn't contradict himself. That wouldn't be very godly. God is always true. And if God says something in the Torah and God, and God says something else through science, they cannot contradict each other. Well, that's all a very, very nice and wonderful explanation. The only problem we have with it is if we look at the Torah itself, it does not read as a book of philosophy, quite the contrary. If you look at the Torah, it seems very unphilosophical, no offense to the Torah. For example, Rahman took it for granted, based on philosophy, that God is all perfection. All perfection means God is one, only one God. There's not 10 gods, there are two gods. God is incorporeal. God has no body, God doesn't have arms, God doesn't have legs, God has no emotions. God is this infinite power, uh, Aristotelian God, so to speak, which is really a law of physics, law of nature, very powerful being that transcends our human understanding. And yet, if we look at the Torah, God took the people of Israel with an outstretched arm. God gets angry at us. God loses his temper. God is a jealous God. God has fingers. And in the Midrashim, God wears tefillin, God prays. What do we supposed to do with all those sources? If you're a simple fundamentalist, you'll say, okay. If the Torah says God has hands and legs and God gets angry, that's, that's absolutely the truth. Ramam says, if you think God has hands and legs, you're a heretic and you have no place in the world to come. That's very strong language. Rambam has no mercy. Why? God, the truth of God is known through philosophy. The Torah cannot contradict philosophy. And therefore, if the Torah speaks in that language, you know what that language is? It's poetry. It's imagery. If God would uh, give us a Torah to uh, the 600,000 men and that many women who came out of Egypt, they were slaves. If God gave them a philosophical text, it wouldn't be possible for them to understand what it's all about. So God gave us the Torah in the language of human beings. It's a poetic work and you have to be able to read it with a certain amount of sophistication. The same thing applies to our rabbis. If you look at the Midrashim, the, the, the different rabbinic explanations, interpretations of the Torah and stories, you'll find many things which are very, very problematic from a rational point of view. They're not rational at all. They give... First of all, in science, they make many mistakes, from that, now that we know their mistakes are mistakes. Ramam himself believed in Ptolemaic astronomy, which is now seems to be proven not to be not true. But our rabbis gave us wrong information on science, wrong information on medicine. And even when they spoke about God, they often spoke about God in ways which we would find problematic. Namely, God is like a person. God's like a big Superman. Uh, who also has emotions and has arms and legs and speaks to us and it's just like a big pal and we uh, Rambam says that can't be true so Rambam says there are three kinds of people one kind of person looks at the words of the rabbis and they say these words are so crazy but if the rabbi said it they're true and I accept them literally whatever they say is absolutely true our sages make no mistakes they're almost infallible And believe it or not, there are people today who have that point of view. If our rabbi said it, they'll defend it. No matter if it's true or false, they'll defend it. That's category number one. Category number two are people who say, well, since the rabbi said things which don't make sense, everything they said is nonsense. These are just ordinary people without any superhuman abilities. And uh, they they were wrong on this. They're probably wrong on other things, too. So they got rid of just that's the way of rejection. They throw it all out. And the Ramam says there's a third group. And that group is so small, it's hardly reasonable to call it a group. And these are the people who understand that when the words of our rabbis are spoken, they're spoken with great wisdom, but our rabbis often spoke in hyperbole, in imagery, and poetry, and you have to be able to read their words in that light. Maimonides had a great son, Abraham, son of Ramam, and he wrote a whole tract on how to interpret Midrashim. He followed his father's advice. He followed that that spirit. And he explained how very, very often the texts of our rabbis need to be understood in a poetic way and not literal way. Our rabbis were not giving us history lessons. They weren't giving us scientific lessons. They were speaking as rabbis from the pulpit. You make up stories because you want to explain things to people. You do the best you can, but it's not to be pinned to the truth with a capital T. So these are the four categories that David Hartman specifies. Now we're going to try to just look at two of them, namely uh, Spinoza, which is the way of rejection and Maimonides, which is the way of integration. Now I told you before that I'm very partial to Spinoza. I like him very much. I like him because he had the chutzpah, he had the guts to think things through clearly. And he insisted that we think clearly, about. but here's what's interesting. Spinoza was living in the middle of the 1600s. He was a person who was a Jew who was hated by Christians. He was a Jew who was hated by Jews, they expelled him. He had no money, he had no influential position. He was a person, but he was a lens, he was a lens grinder. By all rights, Spinoza should have been a nobody. And nevertheless, this non-powerful person rejected by all society, he revolutionized European thought. It's an amazing thing. His thought was so powerful and so frightening, not just the Jews, Christians were also afraid of him. The church was very much afraid of Spinoza because without yelling, without making marches, without doing any noise, just writing quietly. And he published very little during his lifetime. But it was a, he was able to impact uh, way out of proportion what would have been expected from him. And this quiet, shy little guy was able to make all of us think more carefully about Torah. Because even though he rejected it, the grounds of his rejection, which we'll deal with in a moment, were pertinent. They can't be ignored. So for one of the things that Spinoza did for Western civilization was, he said, everyone has a right to give their opinion. If the opinion could be right, or could be wrong, we can reject it. If we could prove it right or prove it wrong. But no one has a right to suppress freedom of speech. Spinoza was probably the first very powerful thinker that impacted on Western civilization that governments exist in order to enhance our freedom, not to oppress us. For Spinoza, he thought being a martyr, being forced to into the, the church forced you to believe something, or the synagogue forced you to believe something, that's immoral. The state's responsibility is to let people say what's on their minds. And if it's true, accept it. And if it's not true, then prove it's not true. But to oppress by means of political pressure or by shaming or by excommunicating, this is something totally unacceptable. Now let's say what the two Maimonides and, and Spinoza have in common. They had faith in reason. Now Rambam, in his various writings, and his most famous writing on reason is in his Guide for the Perplexed, in his, his book of philosophy, he explained clearly that he insists that we try to find reasons for every misbah, whatever God told us is there for a reason. Some people think, you know, to be religious, if God commanded me to stand on my head for three hours a day, that I would do it, even though it's insane, even though it's irrational. Ramam thought that's not religion, that's superstition. Religion is if God told, tells us to do something and we believe God has, quotation marks, intelligence, then whatever God told us to do is for a reason. It's not just, just for, to, for fun, to make a struggle, no. So therefore Ramam said, every mitzvah has a reason. And he goes in the Moran Avukhim at great length to explain even things that we think are not reasonable or have no foundation, Ramam tries to find some reason for it within logic. And even if he's not successful in all of his explanations, you can be sure that if he doesn't have the right answer, eventually the right answer will be found if we only use our brains and think hard enough about it and philosophize enough about it properly. So Maimonides, Accepted the same principle that Spinoza accepted 500 years later, that everything has to be measured on our reason. So, if the Torah gives sentences or words that don't make sense, we reinterpret the Torah. We don't say science is wrong. We say the Torah is speaking in different languages, when a different way of using language. The Rambam's basic point was: science, once something is proven, it's proven. Uh, uh, A while ago. I, I write a column every other week for the Jewish Press in New York, and there was an, uh, they, they asked four or five rabbis some questions, and one of the questions was about uh, astronomy. Does the Earth go around the sun? Does the sun go around the Earth? It's a kind of crazy question in this day and age. So I answered. Of course, Rambam was a scientist, and even though Rambam worked on the basis of a Ptolemaic, Ptolemaic science, astronomy. If you were alive today, you would realize that, that we've learned more and we follow current science. We don't follow medieval science if we have a better science now. None of the other rabbis said that. And one of the rabbis said, I would find it difficult to, uh, to uh, argue with, our, with Chazal. Our sages had a belief in the system. I'd have a difficult, yes, you'd have difficulty arguing with Chazal, but you don't have difficulty positing something which is demonstrably false. Rambam said, if something is demonstrably false, then it can't be true to the Torah. The Torah can't be teaching us something that's false. So it's an amazing thing. Now, Spinoza has trouble, doesn't have trouble. He just simply rejects the idea of a personal God because he thinks God, this is making it very simplistic, but for the sake of this discussion, basically God could be considered nature. Nature just is. Nature has its own laws, its way, its system, but you don't pray to nature. Nature isn't gonna change its rules for your benefit. Nature is nature. And for Spinoza, God, quotation marks, is like that. God is just is, and is not subject to your manipulation. You can pray till you're blue in the face. You can't change nature, you can't change God. What's the difference between Rambam and Spinoza? The difference is this. One of the differences for Spinoza, the highest perfection of a human being is to become a philosopher. If you just think carefully and go rationally, you'll reach the highest level of truth as far as human mind can take you. That's the best thing you could be. For Rambam, that's the second best thing you could be. The best thing to be is a prophet. What is a prophet? For Maimonides, you could not be a prophet unless you first were a philosopher which is different than what many rabbis, uh, pietists would say. For Rambam, you cannot be a prophet unless you also know physics and biology and chemistry and philosophy and literature and psychology and everything else. To be a prophet means you've reached the pinnacle of human perfection intellectually. Then if you're lucky, God will touch you and say, you know, you're intellectually a perfect person, and you're moral and you're righteous, bing, I now give you a prophecy. God can communicate with human beings. Now here's an interesting thing, which I used to have problems when I was younger. I still do, I guess. If Rambam really accepts the idea of a perfect God without emotion, without arms and legs, without feeling this super kind of Aristotelian, Spinozistic kind of God, how do we pray to him? So I once asked that to my teacher, may he rest in peace, Dr. Feldblum, Mayor Sibra Feldblum. And Dr. Feldblum said, Do you think Ramam didn't have that problem? Ramam had the problem. But do you think Ramam prayed every day? Yes, Ramam prayed every day. Oh, that's your answer. Sometimes you have to bridge your faith and your reason. With reason, why should I think that because my stocks are going down today, which, along with everybody else's, I'm afraid to say, well, all of our stocks are getting killed? Why should I think that if I pray to God, suddenly to make the stock market go up tomorrow? What, what kind of chuspa is that? How, why would I think that God has nothing else to do except listen, if I, if I pray the laws of nature for the stock market to go up, is the market gonna go up? Will it make a difference? So on an intellectual level, prayer is very difficult. On a spiritual level, I have a soul. I know intuitively that there's God. I know intuitively that there's, I have a spiritual component Separate from my rat reason, Ramam did not dismiss the spiritual part. In fact, interestingly enough, Ramam's son, Abraham, was very much influenced by Muslim Sufism. Was a, there's a, actually a Sufi movement called Maimonides, Maimonides uh, Sufism. It follows the Abraham Maimonides. So Ramam said to be perfect, A, you have to be a philosopher. But to be really perfect, you get a, a touch from God, And this glorious uh, prophecy. Now, both Rambam and Spinoza had a very great difficulty with the following issue. What is the difference between religion and superstition? Actually, if you think about it, there should be a vast difference, but really there's also a very fine line between religion and superstition. What does it mean? I'm dealing with something beyond rational. So something beyond rational could either be very, very true. I'm touching God. Something very, very true. Or it could be something very, very false. I don't have a way to verify it. If I could put something in a laboratory, if I could put something through a philosophical grinder of my brain, I could come to a truth. I could come to reality. I have a geometric problem. I have a mathematical problem. Either it's right or it's wrong. I can figure it out. But when you come to religion, our God is one. God, we could pray to God. God does miracles. Those things are, are beyond pure reason, beyond pure philosophy. So Spinoza, in fact, he wrote this, it's called a Theological Political Treatise. And he opens it by saying, the masses of people, they don't really have religion. They think they have religion. They don't have religion. What do they have? They have superstition. What is superstition? Superstition is a belief that there's some kind of divine power, some kind of great power that somehow or other we can manipulate. If I only say the right prayers, or I move the beads in the right direction, or if I do the proper incantation, or if I find a shaman or a, a magician, a seer that can do magic, they can make God do what, what I want him to do. They could cure us. If I give the right donation, I can get cured from COVID basically is magic, It's superstition, not not religion. So Spinoza thinks that religion essentially is just another glorified kind of superstition, that almost everything we do or say is not, not philosophical. Mum says quite the opposite. Mum says differently. When I was in high school, way back when, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I attended Franklin High School. I went to public school, for which I'm very grateful. It's a wonderful school. And I had a math teacher named Mr. Bosley. And Mr. Bosley was a very tough teacher, gave us very hard problems. And in the, one of the advanced math classes that we took, he gave us a problem. And right next to the problem, he gave us the answer. Well, that's pretty easy. I already know the answer. So what, was, what was the problem? So now you have to, here's the problem, here's the answer. You have to get, work out this problem. Do all the calculations until you get to that answer. If you get to that answer, your calculations were correct. If you get to that, you don't get to that answer, your calculations were wrong. And you have to go back and check yourself. I like to use that as a model of Rambam's philosophy. For Rambam, we have a truth. The truth is there is God. There is one God. That God gave us the Torah. That's the truth of capital T. Now we know the answer. God gave us these commandments to observe. That's the answer. It's a T, capital T, that's the answer. How do I get from here to there? That's the process. I've got a reason. Why do I do this? What does it make sense? How can I verify prophecy? How can I verify the meaning of the misphode, etc., etc.? If I come to a conclusion that I rejected, I did it wrong. i got to go back to the beginning and go through the process again. If I come to the T with a capital T, I come to the right answer, then I come to the right answer. So for Rambam, religion isn't superstition. Religion is real. Religion is, is our way of connecting with God, this divine force. And I, I have a couple of Rambam that I want to just quote very quickly to you. He, he, um, Rambam has in the following: uh, it's in the laws about laws of idolatry. I'm quoting Rambam now. English translation, anyone who whispers a charm over a wound, or reads a verse from the Torah, or recites a biblical verse over a child lest the child be terrified, or one who places a Torah scroll or tefillin over an infant to enable him to sleep, these people are not only included in the category of sorcerers and charmers, but they are included among those who repudiate the Torah. Oh, what does this person do? has a a wound and he wants to cure the wound. So he says the biblical verse, he says, I quote a a verse from the Bible and based on this verse, I want the wound to be cured. Or I have a baby who's making noises, crying. So I put a tefillin, I put a Mizrazaah in the crib and that the child should shut up and be quiet to get a good night's sleep. The Ramah says, not only is that not religious, those are people who repudiate the Torah. Now, let's think about it. If we do that, do we think we're repudiating the Torah? We're quoting the words of the Torah. We're taking the safer Torah, we're taking Tefillin, we're taking holy things. And, and what could be better than that? How can you be more religious than that? Ramam says, yes, you're taking religious symbols, but you're using them in a superstitious manner. If you use something as a super, in a superstitious manner, that's also not religion. And not only that, you're repudiating the Torah. Wow. That's a strong, strong language. He says in another chapter of the chapter of Mezuzah, chapter five, halakha four. He says, There is a widespread custom to write the word Shaddai on the outer side of the Mezuzah. Since this is written on the outside, there is no harm done. On the other hand, there are those who write inside the Mezuzah names of angels or names of saintly men. Some biblical verse or some charms, these people are included among those who have no place in the world to come. Oh, geez. Here's the people have a mezuzah. It's an amulet with a Shema in it. You put it on your door as a sign of, that your house is a holy house. When you walk in and out, you remember God. What could be more holy than a mezuzah? And to make the mezuzah even more holy, I write the name of angels in it, or I write the names of, I write other psukim in it. Rama says, you do that? You have no place in the world to come. Woo-hoo-hoo. No place in the world to come, that's pretty serious medicine. That's a big punishment. Why? What did I do wrong? Rama says, you know what you did wrong? You treated a holy object as though it's magic. You treated mezuzah as though it's magic. It's not magic. The mezuzah is on your door not as a to save you, not because of some magic formula there. It's to remind you when you walk in and out of your house that there's a God in the world. Raman says religion at its best is so pure and so purified that it does not resemble superstition in any way. And if you do something, even though you think it's religious and it really is superstitious, he he calls you a repudiator of the Torah or somebody who has no place in the world to come. That's very strong language. So I I find it troubling today and many people, um, it, I guess it depends on which circles you're in and what emails you get, what uh, websites you check, but there are people who have someone who's sick. So they say, we're gonna have a, a to reading for someone who's sick. Are we gonna read Psalms for this person's good health? Now the Rambam doesn't rule that out, but let's, let's, let's see what it says. If we are reciting Psalms, and it gives us consolation and we say to the almighty for the merit of our reciting psalms have mercy on this, of this person that's still on the right side of superstition that's not superstition but if i say i'm going to read these psalms if i read them if i read the psalms six times over and i manipulate the letters this way and that way that's going to bring a cure that's superstition right so it's when i make my prayer for someone to be healthy that's not that's fine i'm allowed to pray to god god could listen or not listen that's God's business. But I have a, r- a right and a privilege to pray to God. How do I know I have the right and privilege to pray to God? Rama will answer very, answer, very quickly. Look in the Torah, look at our prophets, people prayed. And God responded to the prayer. It means it's a legitimate form of religious expression. So praying in itself is fine, but praying on the assumption that I can manipulate God. If I only give so much money to charity, then God will do X, Y, and Z or if I only put a red r- ribbon around my wrist, or if I only have an amulet that's been prayed by a certain rabbi or a certain Kabbalist, then I'm gonna be saved. This already from Rambam is the wrong side of uh, religion. That's not religion, that's superstition. We come to the question of the oral Torah. Our tradition is based on not only the written Torah and the prophets, the Tanakh, as we call the Bible, there's also the tradition of our rabbis. And Much of what we do today isn't recorded literally the way we do it in the Bible. Much of the halakha that we call halakha is really derived through the Talmud and through the codes of Jewish law. So much of our religion depends on the authority of the rabbis. Rambam believed that our sages were brilliant, thoughtful, creative philosophers. And when they developed the halakha and they developed their interpretations, They did all of it with great wisdom. However, it requires equally great wisdom to interpret it. Sometimes they spoke one way and sometimes they spoke in parables or riddles or exaggerations. Sometimes they said things that were based on the best knowledge they had for their time and which are no longer relevant when we have new information. And sometimes they spoke with eternal truths so it requires a great deal of sophistication to be able to read and understand the words of our sages. For Spinoza, I don't. he says, I'm talking for Spinoza now, I don't like authority at all. Authority doesn't make something true or false. If a thousand people say something is true and only I say it's false, I still stick with myself because those thousand people could be misguided. And you know what? Ramam also agreed with that principle, by the way. Ramam said, Truth is not determined by votes. You don't count bonnets and say this, the more, the more votes make something true. It's not so. It might be that only one person has the truth and a thousand people are wrong. But Spinoza didn't have that ultimate faith in the rabbis that Rambam had. Rambam came from a tradition. His father was a sage and grandfather. He comes from a sage where he understands the rabbis were very, very serious and very learned and very committed to the cause. Spinoza didn't come from that background at all. Let me just take a two minute aside, we're almost running out of time. So let me just give a two minute aside on Spinoza. Spinoza, I think his, his parents actually were born in Portugal and they were conversos, they were, they were Catholics. They were forcibly converted. A lot of Jews were forcibly converted in Spain and Portugal during that period of time. And over the course of time, some of them were able to get out primarily to Amsterdam, not only Amsterdam, but Amsterdam became a hub. And Spinoza's father, Spinoza was raised in a converso community where the conversos themselves came to Judaism, but they came to Judaism after having lived as Catholics. You can't, for example, let's say they were raised as Catholics and they come to Amsterdam and they, we want to be Jewish again. Okay. You have to have two sets of dishes, meat and milk. I don't see that in the Torah. On, on Yom Kippur, you have to fast. It doesn't say you have to fast. It's like you have to oppress yourself. It doesn't say fasting. Nine times out of 90% of the stuff that we do You can't get literally out of the Torah. Most of those things come out of rabbinic interpretation or tradition going back. Spinoza didn't have that. Rambam had all that tradition. Spinoza comes almost fresh. He learned learned in school as a little boy, he learned the the Talmud Torah and Amsterdam, but he came from a family and whole family tradition of skeptics. There were people who were raised as Catholics some of those people, by the way, went back to Spain and Portugal. They said well, uh, they want to be Catholics. Some of them said I'll be Protestant. Some of them became defected from the Jewish community. Many of them became very observant Jews. But Spinoza, if he were my student, I would have more gray hairs than I have now, but I would appreciate it because he would make me think through my Judaism more carefully. Ramam teaches us Judaism from the inside. He makes us stronger as Jews inside. Spinoza, great challenge is he makes us think and not take things for granted. And that's a great virtue. I think I'm a better rabbi. I think Jews are better Jews because Spinoza lived. I think where time is pretty much up. Now it's time for questions. If anyone has questions, I'm happy to try to.
0: Amazing, amazing. Thank you, Rabbi Angel. Friends, if you wanna unmute yourself, feel free to jump in with a question. I see we have an unmute from Adam Fisher. Yes, please.
2: Uh, I would appreciate uh, Rabbi uh, Angel, if you would explain a little bit more about how uh, Rambam prayed, given his uh, a, a view of God, um, and uh, how, he,
1: uh, how he did that. Uh, there was a wonderful professor, Marvin Fox, who's at Brandeis for many years. He was a friend of mine. So passed away some years ago. And he wrote a number of things about Rambam. And one of the things he dealt with was exactly your question. How could Rambam so to speak compartmentalized as a philosopher he envisioned this God really basically an Aristotelian God as a Jew praying as a rabbi praying he prayed with emotion and, and, and total belief Marvin Fox suggests that Ramam never spells out how he was able to do that but it's kind of magic And I, I, let me, I'll give you personally I, I have the same dilemma I think any thinking Jew has the same dilemma as a Rambam had as that you're pointing out on one hand, we have a very sophisticated idea about God. On the other hand, we feel emotionally, we could pray. And we see in the Torah that Abraham prayed and Moses prayed and the, all kinds of people were praying. So we, we actually live and we have to integrate. The way of integration means I have to harmonize <coughs> excuse me, my, my intellect with my, the emotional side of who I am. I also have a brain, but I also have a soul. And some, there's no formula that makes it happen. But when it happens, it happens. Falling in love. You, you can write a principle how to fall in love. A textbook won't get you there. When you fall in love, you know you're in love. So I think that's what happens.
2: Actually, uh, um, Arthur Green uh, talks about uh, uh, that God is uh, <coughs> a personal name, yud- hay hay, uh, for God and that uh, because uh, we can uh, we could approach God uh, in, in that sense, uh, a, a, in a personal way, uh, given that we, uh, we have God's name, even though it's not pronounced. Uh, and, uh, but that uh, when we step back from that, uh, we uh, understand that we were engaged in a series of metaphors um, and that from a rational point of view, from an emotional point of view, we were deeply involved in prayer.
1: Very well said, I couldn't say better myself.
0: Thank you, thank you so much. Okay, who wants to jump in next here? Um, this yes. is Shira. Uh, yes, it's, hi, it's, Shira. And then I see um, oh, someone with the name iPad Meadow is gonna go next. Yes, oh, go ahead, Shira. Oh, can go
3: if in it. Oh, okay. That's no, okay, Shira, so, please come. So first of all, thank you. I've never um, heard the a very good explanation about uh, Rambam's uh, uh, point of view as as i heard today thank you it it cleared so many things so thank you for that and i wanted to say that um, you said that Rambam always um, went back to he he rationalized everything but he always found an a, an answer to go back to god to the truth right to the big t while spinoza uh, moved away from it so Uh, Rambam lived in a, in a sense, in in times where religion was the center of the existence. So maybe, so my question is, do you, do you think or, or is there any other philosopher that are similar to, to Rambam nowadays? Because Pinoza lived in, in times where secularism kind of took over the world, right? So every, so the center was the, 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 the human being and not, and not religion. So, so I, I'm kind of confused, uh, a little bit confused with my, my question, but it's like comparing two people who lived in different times and in different uh, uh, way of existence. So so it seems like Rambam would have moved always to, towards God because that's what everybody else did. Christianity, Muslims, you know what I mean? A Muslim didn't exist back I then. I what you're
1: then. saying, but even, oh, in, well, even yeah. in Maimonides' time, even in Rambam's time, there were people who were very uh, strongly questioning Judaism and, and other religions as well. So, for example, he wrote the Guide for Perplexed to one of his students who was perplexed. He wanted, to, they, they, they didn't know whether they should continue with, with the faith or not continue with the faith. They had too many questions. So, it wasn't as if people were so ignorant and they all just f- f- had blind faith. There was also a time of, of intellectual ferment and religious ferment. Spinoza was still living in a time in the 1600s where the world, by and large, was still religious. The Christian world was still very strong. The church was still very powerful. How about today, when religion is very much on the defensive in most places, and where it's on the offensive, it's very offensive. I should say, it's the religion today has become very militant rather than very uh, spiritual, in many ways. Okay, that's a generalization. I, I apologize, but, <laughs> but the, uh, I think it's hard. I, I don't think you could have a philosopher today like Maimonides or like Spinoza, because we, we're, we're in a different era. But you could have thinkers today, and every, every one of us could be a thinker, that integrates their ideas and um, homogenizes them and goes to the next level. In other words, what we really need, in my humble opinion, is a philosopher who not only specifies the rational part of Judaism, as Maimonides does very, very well, but who also equally takes into the, the, the more spiritual, emotional, Kabbalistic part of Judaism as well. When I say Kabbalistic, I don't mean the superstitious Kabbalah. I mean Kabbalah at its essence, the spiritual spirituality at its essence. So there's still plenty of room for us to uh, advance in our religious thinking. It's just, um, I don't know who's doing it yet. That's Rabbi Yanklowicz's job. <laughs> great
0: just before we go to ipad meadow and our friend barbara and then i see jim salander has got a hand up um our good friend aj frost writes it uh, writes in the chat what does it say about jewish philosophy that both rambam and, and spinoza had day jobs doctor and lens maker would you say that the most effective and convincing jewish philosophies come from a sort of lived in experience versus those who
1: simply study texts? I, I love that question that is, that's the best yeah. question of the day i love it my humble opinion is that that's has a lot to do with reality. In other words, if you're living in an ivory tower and you're in an academic world and you're just in the Beit Midrash all the time, you have great ideas, but they're not tested by reality. They're ideas that are living in a hothouse. I think, see, I'm, I'm, let me go back to myself and many of my contemporaries. We, when we were, grew up in the old days, there weren't that many yeshiva high schools around. So we went to public school and I'm grateful. I have a master's degree in English literature from City College besides my rabbinic degree. And I'm grateful to it because it opened my mind. And I think the best rabbis, I hope Rabbi Yemkewitz, you also have a good secular education. The best rabbis really are those who have had to test their their religion in the real, the real world. It's not uh, isolated, insulated religion. It's how do I function as a thinking religious Jew, even though I had to go to school with people who were not Jewish, not religious, Uh, even though, hey, I studied literature and science and whatever else that everyone else has to study. I think Rambam and and Spinoza, because of their world experience, I think that did give them a little edge. I don't wanna press the point, but I I think it gave them an edge. Thank you for raising that question.
2: Okay. First of all, Rabbi Angel, thank you very much. You opened some wonderful doors and Shmuley, you've always heard me say this and I'll say it again. the real purpose to me for following Judaism and, and, and the appreciation I have for Judaism is that there are so many brilliant people that have so many diverse opinions about what Judaism is that I've boiled it all down into one little thing. However we pray, however we believe, however we behave, it all ends up being the purpose is tikkun olam.
0: Okay, thank you, <laughs> Okay, it's a good thank point, so Mike. Barbara, thank you. Good. Okay, iPad Meadow.
3: Wonderful. Okay, I'm a psychologist, and I wonder what you think uh, the Rambam or Spinoza would have to say about the works of Freud and the unconscious. I don't
1: think they would have envisioned it. They'd have to. It would be very difficult to guess what they would do in their world, in their world that they lived in. That's what I wonder.
3: And, and because most uh, scholars did not live in the modern world, then would you say that uh, philosophical Judaism uh, has uh, uh,
1: much to learn? I think that all of us have much to learn. So I, I like to look at Judaism as a process. It's not a thing. It's not in a box. No matter how much we know, we know 1% of what we're supposed to know. What do you think about
3: Freud's ideas of the unconscious?
1: I'm not a Freudian expert. I can't comment. I've read some stuff about him on dreams. I've read some stuff of, of his about religion and Moses. Some of the things I think he's got crackpot and some of the, about Moses. I think he was a little bit off the base. And about religion in general, I don't subscribe to his stuff. However, he had insights about how the human mind works. And I don't think all psychologists agree with Freud. Uh, You know more than I do on this subject. However, my basic theory is that the more we learn, the more ideas that are brought into the process, the more we read, the more we're able to synthesize all this material and come up with something better, something new. And so I I think we should look at Judaism as an open-ended book. We have lots of stuff behind us, but we also have thousands of years ahead of us. And I like to think forward and we should draw on whatever not sources of knowledge that we have, it's all to the good.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. OK, we're going to go on to Jim Salander. Uh, the the musar teachers reminded us that the
4: Judaism is where the rubber meets the road, where it does in your daily life, either across whatever spectrum, your patience, your generosity, your chesed, and so forth.
1: I can hardly hear you.
4: I'm sorry, I said, I said, the Musser teachers have looked at this in terms of the personal, uh, the, the, the management of the individual philosophy and the practice of Judaism on a very practical level with the various characteristics and made a study. And reminded us of the unconscious and that we had to practice things to escape the unconscious biases that we had and learn how to behave better. And so I think that that the idea that that Maimonides or Spinoza have a corner on the market, I think is I, I don't I don't particularly like I like to study them I like to read them because I think the real value is the struggle. That's what our value is, and that's what we should be encouraged to do, and not simply to accept. I think we should read this, we should read that, but the story of Judaism is a story of struggle, and it's the fact that we don't have the answers but we simply have more questions, which has been the fuel that's kept the, the, uh, uh, the Jewish mind alive, is the continual search for questions with curiosity. Aside from that, I mean, I like, I like your predecessor, Rabbi Soloveitchik, uh, 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 the, uh, um, I think Rabbi Sachs, meets the criteria that you were looking for of modern thinkers that can make the bridge and uh, um, Zalman Schechter Salome of the Renewal Movement was, was a huge bridge maker in terms of bringing lots of other ideas to the Jewish community and incorporating them in a very meaningful Jewish way. I'm not gonna argue with you, I agree with you. One quick question though for you on Spinoza. Do you think part of his excommunication had to do with the economics of the time and the slave trade and his belief that slavery was bad it's, it's only so
1: 23 it's hard to it's hard to, to to guess there's so many theories about why he was excommunicated my humble opinion is that forgetting all the externals about about the, the economics and, and the, the fate of the church whatever it is in point of fact spinoza didn't believe in the Jewish tradition he rejected it and the rabbis in amsterdam and the the, the, the members of the board there they had this Here's a guy who just doesn't believe in this is going to cause trouble in our community. This is a troublemaker. Even though he's very quiet and shy. He's going to cause a lot of dissension here. We're better off throwing him out. And I think that's what they decided. Whether that was right or wrong. You know, it's easy to judge from from the vantage point of hundreds of years later.
4: He's only Uh, 23 when he gets excommunicated.
1: What can I tell you? You know, that's what happened. That's his history. It's not it's not subject to change. It happened. If we were there, would we have voted for the excommunication? Based on our knowledge, we wouldn't have voted for it, but but uh, we weren't there. Rabbi Angel, I'm
0: going to take the privilege of the last question here, yeah. and uh, picking up on, on Spinoza and the ban a little bit. Um, we can look at the intersection of harem, of a ban, and cancel culture. So historically, there, the, obvious, the, the differences are obvious. A harem is done by the rabbinic establishment. A cancel culture is done by a popular culture, uprising, social media and the like. Um, and then one of the real main differences, however, is in a knee dewy, a person is banned for a week or, or a self-banned or banned by the establishment. Um, in, a, in a harem, it's, it's, um, it's, it's ended eventually is the idea at least uh, after a few years. Um, or, or, but cancel culture doesn't have a mechanism to kind of uncancel. So I wonder, like, is there something to learn from our history of excommunication that's positive um, in regards to how, or, or do you think it's uh, only negative in regards to how we think of this cancel process today?
1: I think if, if the, it, By the way, I, I think that it wasn't the rabbis who excommunicated Spinoza alone. Right. It was right. the board of the right. synagogue. The Muhammad did the expulsion. If they didn't expel him, he wouldn't have come to synagogue anyway he would have expelled himself. He didn't belong there. He was intellectually, he had enough intellectual integrity to know this isn't where I belong anymore. I, I'm, I, and he would have just not gone there. They could have saved themselves a lot of trouble and a lot of historical anguish by not excommunicating him. So he's, hey, you're welcome to come to synagogue, but he wouldn't have come anyway. He, he, he was he was done. So I, I, I don't know, it's very hard to extrapolate from then to cancel culture today. I, my own opinion is, I tend to be on the side of intellectual freedom. I think people should think there are a lot of ideas we don't like, a lot of ideas we do like. Let everyone say what they want to say, and if they're wrong, we'll try to point out that they're wrong. We just don't want lies, we don't want uh, buffoonery, we don't want hatred. Uh, But if people are giving rational, sensible arguments, we should pay
0: attention. Thank you so much, Rabbi Dr. Mark Angel, and thank you all for joining us. We we'll hope you'll keep learning with us almost every day here at Valley Bait Midrash. Have a great day. Thank you, thank you Shmuley.
2: Thank you, Dr. Rabbi.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work. By making a donation at valleybeatmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.